You are listening to episode 1601 of the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. As we begin, a few quick statistics of where things went. In 2015, I released 55 episodes. Followers to the show on Facebook and Twitter more than doubled. And regular listenership is now at over 15,000 per episode. Another number that's doubled since the start of the year. Today I want to take a few minutes and look at some of the best episodes from the preceding 12 months as an overview of where the show's been and to prepare us for where the show is going to go. In putting together the list of what to include, it became a survey of what was popular on the podcast and for our particular slice of the permaculture community. It gives us an understanding of where things have gone, as well as your interests in reaching out to have certain guests on the air or to investigate certain topics. If you're new to permaculture or this podcast, the interviews mentioned here and listed in the resource section at the bottom of the show notes page provide a beginning to explore the archives, which contain hundreds of hours of interviews with a broad cross-section of permaculture practitioners, authors, scientists, and others who are all dedicated to creating a better world. Every time I sit down to look over the year that came before, I always toss around different ideas of what to include and what to best represent the trends and ideas, without having to sit down and give like a blow-by-blow of every topic and conversation. I really enjoy hosting this show, and in many regards, every episode is cherished for what it is. So... I'd be just as happy to list every episode in order throughout the year, from 1501 through 1555, but I know that's not really that interesting. Instead, I have to use some kind of metric or decision-making process to figure out what to share. That could be something like total listens to a given episode, but that gives a preference to something that was released earlier in the year. Comments are great, but they can vary widely, and with any kind of material like this, the more polarizing a guest is, will of course generate more feedback. And even with that feedback, what source to judge from? Compile them all together, use just those that are left on the website, or some other way. Because even though there are some responses left at the permaculturepodcast.com, most come in directly to me via your email or a phone call. But then other times, some interviews, like that with Jason Gadeski, generate a lot of interest on Facebook. Thinking through all that and looking at the year, I decided to begin by looking at the topics that trended as the most popular subjects on the show, to include some pieces that aren't part of those topics but really seem to connect with people, and to share a few of my personal favorites, and then close with a guest who continues to be the most popular on the show. By far, the topic that got the most attention was foraging and rewilding. Every time this subject came up, new suggestions poured in for people to reach out to for interviews, other books and articles to read, or different angles to address this idea of primal reconnection to ourselves and the land. The two conversations with Peter Michael Bauer were some of the most downloaded and commented on interviews of the year. Peter's first conversation in March provided an introduction to human rewilding and the intersection with permaculture, and was so well received that he returned in November to explore the difference between rewilding the land 
and undomesticating ourselves. I think that one of the reasons why Peter was so popular, as were the other guests featured in today's episode, is because of their self-awareness and understanding the place that they come from, and that they still have a lot of work to engage in to get to the point where they want to be. That it's a continual work in progress to move ever closer to that ideal world while navigating this society that we currently live in. Someone else in the rewilding and foraging community who's doing that is Dina Falcone, author of Foraging and Feasting. Her discussion of food as medicine, the idea of developing and using master recipes so that we can improvise in the kitchen, and the distinction between a plant as food or a culinary addition resonated with many people. And frankly, her book is gorgeous and is one to leave out on the coffee table so that if, when you have friends over, they can sit and browse it and start to ask questions and think about the plants that are in it. From the landscape and the self, we move to human society and our cultural stories, which played a big part this year in the discussions about social permaculture, where these most connected were when many voices came together as one in the roundtable recordings. Repeatedly, I've heard from you that these are the episodes that you put on repeat and have decided to listen to over and over again. And those included the two conversations with Ben Weiss and Dave Jackie, one of which featured Charles Eisenstein, the Journey to the Riverside Project in West Virginia, where Nicole Luttrell, Jesse Weiner, Ashley Davis, and Diane Bluest joined me for another two parts that started talking about permaculture, but settled into a discussion about what it means to call a place home. And then as part of the largest roundtable yet, sitting down with the Clear Creek community outside of Berea, Kentucky. Though each of those conversations touched on very different ideas, the space created by coming together, I think felt like you and I were invited to be a part of the circle, to sit, ask questions, and listen. And in some cases, we were able to do that when I acted as your proxy and asked for questions via Twitter and Facebook, and those of you who responded had them included in those conversations. Along with those in-person experiences that touched on many aspects of what were once known as the invisible structures, the social and cultural side were pushed to the edge when I sat down with Jason Gadeski. Though on the surface we talked about narrative and myth-making and how we can accomplish that through games, such as the role-playing game that he created, The Fifth World, there was a deeper exploration of the push-pull experienced between waking up and turning on lights and having on-demand hot water, and how to live a life that isn't just about reducing consumption while still generating damage, but instead is something more regenerative. I'm thankful for the voice Jason brought to the table that day, after we'd already had a long weekend at Save Against Fear, and were still able to look at the difference between the modern versus the traditional, holistic compared to reductionist, and personal responsibility versus systemic hegemony. Moving outside the topics of interest, there are three episodes that I feel deserve mentioned as ones you should listen to if you haven't heard them or listen to them again if you have. The first is with Joshua P. Seeker Hughes and our overview of modern permaculture 
that resulted in the first episode explicitly looking at the need for transitional ethics during this time of transformation. Combining that with his personal story created an acknowledgement that we can do more, but that doing so involves making an act of choice, to embody permaculture and live it intentionally, but in a way that doesn't abuse ourselves for being citizens of the world that we were born into. Do what we can and continue to move forward. I was initially a little hesitant about releasing the conversation, because this series as a whole usually generates a lot of feedback, and often very negative. Dylan's time on the air did wind up bringing the number of replies that I expected, but they were often private via email, and in a different way. His raw voice and self-awareness led to responses that stretched across a range of religious traditions, and gave form to an expression of faith as a way to tend the world we are given that is a personal pursuit compatible with designing the world we want to live in. There was no hate mail this time around for covering religion and spirituality within permaculture, but if you go back and listen, I think you'll hear that it wasn't actually that kind of conversation. The final of the standalone standout episodes comes from when I went to see Eric and Victoria of Charm City Farms in Baltimore, Maryland. In particular, it was Victoria's personal journey that opened a space to hear a voice that sounded similar to many of yours. She came from a place where she could have made any of a number of choices toward the life she lived. And when choosing a road, worked through the struggles of what that path meant in order to lead to a sense of self and right livelihood. Every time I sit down with a microphone, I never know what will wind up being recorded or where the interview will go. That day in Baltimore led to something special, and I'm grateful to Victoria for allowing me to share it with you. Now that I've covered the episodes... I heard from you about. There are two that were some of my personal favorites. Those were the ones with Holly Brown of Island Creek Farm and talking with Toby Hemingway about the permaculture city. Holly means so much to my own journey as a permaculture practitioner, not only for the content of the conversation you can listen to, but also because of the way that we spent our time together the day we met. She was the last stop on my journey through Virginia, visiting with permaculture farmers and homesteaders that started with Lee and Dave O'Neill of Radical Roots several days earlier. That morning, as I drove out to her farm, I found myself a little road-weary and ready to start the trek back up north on Interstate 81 to my home in Pennsylvania. One of the icebreakers that I like to use sometimes is to ask a permaculture practitioner what one of their hobbies is that is the furthest away from the ethics and principles of permaculture. That thing that for them stands as a point of discord. And mine is that I love cars and driving. It was something instilled in me by my father at a young age, as I sat in the back of some classic American muscle, and later some Swedish GT cars, being hauled around as a child. And then my own life as a gearhead, behind the wheel of Japanese sports cars and GT cars of my own. 
And as much as I love to drive, I despise getting on I-81 for more than an hour or so. And the thought of four hours driving from Virginia back home that day felt like a stretch of my own personal hell laid out in asphalt. And it was that feeling I carried with me while winding my way through back roads, already running late after sitting in traffic while trying to leave Roanoke. And I began to question this last stop of the day and of the journey, and whether to reschedule with Holly to come back another time. The closer I got to the farm, the narrower the roads became, and the slower the speed limit. And I didn't know what I would find when I arrived, or how this last conversation would close out a whirlwind journey. My first time taking the podcast on the road to visit, talk, and document permaculture projects in person. Finally, after nearly two hours in the car, for what should have not taken nearly that long, I rounded the final turn and came to Island Creek. After backing up a bit because I missed the lane, for the first time I saw why Holly and her farm were recommended as a place to visit. The site was gorgeous, and there out in the fields were a pair of souls working the land with their hands, skin deeply tanned from time spent out of doors. Shortly, they would be revealed to me as Holly and one of her farm interns. Within moments of meeting, after Holly and her intern finished their harvesting and the business of the day, Holly and I stepped into the small home she shares with her husband and children, a home built by their hands on land given to them by their family as a wedding gift. We sat and ate a lunch of vegetable curry topped with yogurt she made from raw milk sourced from another nearby farm, paired with a salad of her own variety of mixed greens. That gave us space before the interview to sit and talk about children, family, and life. After we finished lunch and recording, we toured the farm where I got to eat my first fresh fig right there, pulled directly off the tree. And as she showed me the structures and systems and plants on the farm, we talked about the politics of being a permaculture farmer in an area with a conservative view of farming that sees modern industrial driven agriculture as the only way and how to make the choices required to have a successful permaculture farm that runs counter to those ideas that others see as the norm when our perspective isn't the one reinforced by the society we live in though all of that happened outside of the conversation that formed the interview. If you go back and listen to that time made public with Holly, you'll find many of the tenets and tones right there. Holly is someone I look forward to visiting again, to sit down and continue to push the edges of what it means to embody permaculture as a small-scale farmer working the land, powered by calories and not fossil fuels. The impact of that day and how it resonates with me is why you'll see the picture of Holly's farm as the cover image for this episode. On the other side of that, looking at living in an urban setting was Toby Hemingway, well known and carrying high regard within our community. I'd chased him off and on through the years for an interview, but we were never quite able to connect. And I'll admit to never really being a fan of Gaia's Garden, but I found the permaculture city was like talking with an old friend about many of the concerns that I had 
regarding permaculture. The resulting interview wound up being warm and gracious, but I think in its own way a bit heretical, because Toby did the math and raised questions about the practicality and sustainability of an often repeated permaculture dream of going off-grid, returning to the land, and seeking self-sufficiency. As he says in the book, he's done subsistence farming, and it isn't a joy by any sense of the imagination. It's hard work that many of us are not realistically ready for, so what can we really do to do us? To practice permaculture within the space of what we're ready for and really good at. The permaculture city also took permaculture a step further out of the landscape to areas where there may be no soil to grow in, or we find ourselves just not suited to it. And to try may honestly be a waste of our time and energy. If we find that to be the case, what then? What do we do to still live in a regenerative manner during this period of transition, to lessen our consumption and impacts, when the answer is counter to so many years of conversation and literature on what we're told permaculture is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. Deep down, if you've practiced permaculture for any length of time, I think that you know the truth, the answers to what we have to do. We've heard it before through people like Bob Tice, imploring that we don't go and inflict ourselves on a piece of land that doesn't need us. Or Dave Jackie addressing that what we called invisible structures for so long need to be framed for what they are, social and economic systems. And here in his book in conversation with me was Toby Hemingway, the number one selling author on the subject of permaculture, to the best of my knowledge, calling all of that into question and asking us to examine our own choices. Here were some of my doubts about the permaculture narrative given voice. Was my mind blown as a result? Yeah, just a little. And it's what's taken me down this road to continue to stand in two worlds and create a place through the podcast to look at these bigger picture questions so we can build permanent culture rather than just ensuring we achieve permanent agriculture. I know some of us have gotten into semantical conversations about that idea of permanent culture, and it's part of my bias, but I like writing and the other hallmarks of what it means to develop art and literature and all of the other things that we have and can experience. But in saying that, it doesn't mean that I support our current civilization or culture. There are lots of places that we can intersect and create a bigger difference. With all those voices and conversations, and the others in the archives, can you guess who the number one guest of all time on the show is out of the last five years? And so, receives an honorable mention here? Are you shocked at all if I say Ethan Hughes? His insights and thoughts from those two interviews years ago, as well as the shorter piece talking about Christmas, continued to connect with so many people, including, to my surprise, a large number of folks from Australia and New Zealand. This work of his, to embrace and embody permaculture in a way that is personally fulfilling, radical, and world-changing, while remaining non-proselytizing, shows a dramatically different way forward.
you and I might not ever live the way he and the Possibility Alliance members do. Because for me, at least, as Eric Tonesmeyer and I have, have talked about, I like being able to turn the lights on and the ability to communicate worldwide instantaneously via the internet. But Ethan's actions help me get a little bit closer to where I want to be every time we talk or I listen back over the public interviews. It's why I picked up the phone and called him to talk about my desire to create an urban demonstration site here in Pennsylvania, and with it, a semi-intentional community. As that phone call drew to a close, and he'd shared a number of insights in how to start a project like that, the conversation led us to talking about writing, in particular about a book that reflected his personal journey, but with the practical insights necessary so that anyone can create change where they are, not just where they physically live, but within the place where they find themselves, emotionally, socially, economically, and to be able to do so as conventionally or radically as one would like. Even more to my surprise, as Ethan shared these ideas with me, he asked me to be his partner on the project, which resulted in what we're calling the Possibility Handbook. As a new year dawns, so does this new project. And I leave for the Possibility Alliance on January 15th, 2016, to sit down, off-grid, and record with Ethan. In talking with him, I look forward to finding more of that inspiration that's resulted in him being so popular with the listeners on this particular show. If you'd like to learn more about the Possibility Handbook in particular, visit thepermaculturepodcast.com forward slash book. There you can listen to a short interview with Mr. Hughes discussing the contents we'll cover and what he hopes to accomplish by bringing this material into the world. You'll also find information and links on how to take part in a listener-only crowdfunding campaign where you'll receive early access to the book and chapters and pictures and all kinds of other things as they become available, as well as exclusive content, such as the audio files of the interviews we record, that will not be offered anywhere but there, now or in the future. If you'd like to contribute to the show in general, visit the permaculturepodcast.com and click on the support tab to find out how you can help. In drawing this look back over 2015 to a close, I want to say thank you to you, the listener, for being a part of the show over the years. And to those who have donated, shared links, or reached out to me via email or phone, or by taking the time to put a letter in the mail. All of that has made this podcast a success in ways that I never imagined in October of 2010 when I first sat down with an inexpensive USB headset and an old Linux laptop to start talking about permaculture. I couldn't do this without you. Thank you. <laughs>